You are listening to the Teaching and Learning Podcast, the podcast where teachers are the learners and come together to make the most of their students' learning experiences. Hello, everyone. I'm Jordan Catapano, English teacher at Conant High School with you once again. The title of today's episode is Doing the Work, a conversation on inclusivity. And I'm really excited to share with you my conversation with Nathaniel Rouse. Mr. Rouse began his teaching career in public education as an English teacher at West Leiden High School in the fall of 1999. After teaching for three years, he entered education administration as the Dean of Students at his alma mater, Elgin High School in 2002. From 2004 to 2008, Mr. Rouse was an assistant principal at Highland Park High School before becoming the first African-American principal at Oak Park River Forest High School in 2008. After serving as principal at Oak Park River Forest High School, Mr. Rouse became the first ever Director of Equity, Race, and Cultural Diversity Initiatives at Barrington Community School District 220 for the 2020-2021 school year. Mr. Rouse is currently in his 25th year in education and is dedicated to transformational leadership, service, and action that eradicates these systemic inhibitors in schools that continue to marginalize students of color. Oak Park River Forest was the high school featured on the STARS docuseries, America to Me, which aired in 2018, and which focused on the achievement disparities of students of color in an affluent suburb school district. In 2011, Mr. Rouse received the Phi Delta Kappa Educator of the Year Award from Northeastern Illinois University. In 2018, Mr. Rouse received the Rainbow Push Coalition and Citizenship Education Fund Overcomers Award. And finally, Mr. Rouse was most recently featured in the 2020 November-December Quintessential Barrington. You'll hear us cover a lot of territory in a short time frame, but I think you'll be especially interested in listening for what Mr. Rouse brings up related to the power of the individual teacher and importance of the classroom experience, the role Colk curriculars play, how disparities stem from systemic racism and what we can do about it, and how the work of equity is a long-term commitment. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as, as always, stick around after for a few thoughts and takeaways. All right, I'm very excited to be here today with Mr. Rouse. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us on the Teaching and Learning podcast today. Sure, thank you for having me. Really, really excited to be here. So uh, as you know, we have uh, a lot to learn and uh, a lot of you know, growth and just understanding and certainly application to do when it comes to bringing equity into our practice as educators. Um, so I, I kind of want to start at square one with you and just pick your brain a little bit. Um, you know, we've, we've talked about terms uh, like diversity and equity and inclusion for some time. And one of the things that stands out is that um, you know, the, the very fact that we have to talk about them and have to work at bringing them into fruition and it shows that they, they don't come easily and they don't come naturally. So why, why do you think it is hard work to try to incorporate some of these ideals into education? Um, well, the flat honest truth is uh, systemic racism. Um, um, that is the, the core reason why it's hard to, to work diversity, equity and inclusion ideals into education. Um, Educational systems have been built on the premise of serving uh, dominant cultures, racially uh, speaking at this time, um, which has continued to perpetuate ideologies, practices, uh, and beliefs that allow for privilege uh, for some and then barriers to access for predominantly black, black and brown students. Um, the systems is act are actually doing exactly uh, what they've been set up to do. So the DEI efforts challenge those systemic beliefs. 
So what you're saying then is, is even as we look historically, like we have not just you know an, an individual or a set of individuals, but even a, a system that is designed and, and operating as it's been designed to create those disparities. So then as we, as we look at it uh, from kind of, of this perspective now, where as an educator, I would say like, yeah, I, I, I don't want those disparities for my students. What, what are some of those things that are like realistically standing in the way between the experience I want my students to have and the one that they're actually getting? So, um, I mean, let's, let's talk about like the term inclusion, for example, and what that means. You know, um, it means that all people, regardless of their abilities, disabilities, or healthcare needs, have the right to be respected and appreciated as valuable members of communities. Um, inclusion or inclusive values uh, developed through a student's lived experiences uh, that expose them to other cultures and worldviews. So, like, for example, think about the mindset uh, of bringing your community into your classroom and then taking your classroom into the community. That being said, as you think about um, inclusion and decision-making, as you look at tables, um, how often are people of color on those committees or in those decision-making places or allowed to be in those spaces? Or more importantly, if they're not, how many times do we reach out to those individuals and ask them about their experiences uh, um, for whatever reasons? And a lot of times, you know, what I've learned in my day is, 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 is if you ask students and they trust you, they're going to tell you about their experiences and they're going to tell you exactly what's wrong with those experiences and exactly what you can do to fix them. So then the question is, is okay, as me as an educator, am I gonna stand on my laurels and listen to these students and develop the empathy that's needed so that you know, they see education and they see me differently? Or am I going to continue um, um, with the status quo? So are you, are you saying to an extent, like I, like I as a, a white male, like middle-class educator, that's, that's who I am and that's, that's what I bring to the table is my set of perspectives and experiences. Um, so then we're um, you know, at fault or, or potentially like perpetuating some of uh, what we're talking about by assuming that what I'm bringing to the table is, is the only thing and that uh, you know, anyone who's not like me should kind of adjust to what I expect of them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's a great way to describe it. Um, and uh, a lot of times uh, when students of color do not see themselves uh, um, um, in positions of authority, or as, as teachers, um, or do not have those experiences, or see themselves more importantly in the curriculum, there's a loss there. And so time and time again, you know, the, the black and brown students are either code switching or, or being in spaces where they're learning, but they don't seem to be learning about themselves. They don't seem to be learning about their cultures. More importantly, people don't seem to be interested in their cultures and what their cultures have and, or what they can bring into those classrooms. And so that creates a space where there's dissonance. And um, you know, students respond differently to those situations, depending upon their home lives, depending upon you know, how they value school, how their families value school, and the expectations that teachers have set up for them. So those have, you know, net can, can be very, very negatively, ne negative impacts on students and their growth. Nice, I, I wanna explore that a little bit more because you had um, mentioned just listening to students, listening to uh, what their experiences and their perspectives are. Um, and you said like, if they trust us as well. Um, so do you have any uh, suggestions for how like teachers might productively engage students in uh, you know, a, a conversation like that to help bring um, into reality some of those perspectives that we're inviting? Sure. Um, I, I talk a lot uh, with staff about um, finding ways to hold safe spaces for students in class. 
so that you can have conversations about real life events. Um, let's take, um, you know, this, these last couple of weeks, there's been all kinds of wonderful things that we could talk about oh, yeah. in our country. And hopefully, um, you know, students have had the opportunity to express themselves, not just in history classes, but in other spaces about how they feel. And um, holding space can simply be, hey, students, how are you doing today? Um, you know, we know that something crazy out there has happened. How are you feeling? Let's check in with one another. You know, mm -hmm. but at the same time, um, let's remember that we need to have some norms uh, on, on how we have these conversations so that students understand that they can comfortably express themselves or their opinions or their experiences without feeling that they're going to be pounced on, you know, by classmates or the teacher because they have different beliefs. When you develop that safe space and develop that, that, that opportunity for students, that's when the lived experiences and multiple perspectives can be shared. And hopefully that's where your empathy is built. That's how we learn from one another. And again, although we may not agree at the end of our discussion, we can respect and understand where each other come from better. That's where that empathy is built. And that's where I think we can get the most grounds, if you will, relative to student experiences in classrooms and developing those safe spaces. Yeah, you know, just from some experiences I've had, sometimes the the most um, you know productive and diverse conversations I've had have been with students, uh, and as opposed to with adults, sometimes where Absolutely. some of those norms are just thrown out of the window relatively early. Uh, but students really have impressed me with their capacity and their desire to engage in you know thoughtful dialogue um, where Absolutely. it is you know it is mutual and respectful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, are there other things that we can do to, uh, like, just as, as sincere educators, uh, we have our, our set of students and their you know, different backgrounds and their cultures and their experiences, um, other ways that we can either um, just invite their, their perspective and their feedback on things like curriculum and things like how class is conducted in ways that we can give them more voice and, and more ownership over, uh, like what you're saying, like over being able to see themselves and connect to the educational experience. Sure, um, and I can talk about an example if you don't mind. Um, we had yeah. a situation where um, um, we have a, a group that wanted to, um, uh, as, as, as part of a curricular project, they wanted to, uh, let me grab the book here. They wanted to discuss a book that was called uh, Bud, Bud Not Buddy by Christopher Paul Curtis. And it's, it's an award-winning book, it's on, it's on adoption, right? And so um, in this particular class, there was uh, one African-American student and he just happened, not only was he the only African-American student, but he was the only student that was adopted hmm. in the class. And so um, had there not been, in any proactive uh, um, conversations with that student beforehand, well, that could have been a co colossal disaster. That, that, that student's parents could have freaked out and like, what are we doing? Why are we having this book? And it could not have been a teachable moment opposed to a situation where the teacher has the foresight to have a conversation with the student asking them, first of all, how are you feeling? Is this okay, right? You know, how, you know, I, and, and again, I want, to, I want to allow you to be part of this experience. So, you know, maybe checking with the parents to see if that student would be uncomfortable, uh, would, would be comfortable sharing their story and sharing their experience, especially if it's similar or different to what the students are reading. I think that's a great way to empower a student in that moment versus isolate that moment. And so I, I say that to say, knowing your students is important, you know, connecting with them, finding ways to include them in the educational process. And also, you know, get to know them, you know, hey, if they're in a sport and a club or activity, Ask them about this, you know, ask them about their weekends, you know, ask them, you know, how things are going. Let them know that you are invested in their lives as individuals, not just as students in their classroom. 
that's when you build the coalition of students that will run a run through a brick wall for you as an educator. Nice. And, you know, that's one thing, um, you know, we've, we've heard and, and definitely put in practice for um, the, the duration of my experience as an educator is uh, building those relationships and trying to build connections. Um, uh, there is maybe one, I don't know if it's a misconception, but the idea that, well, like you're bringing equity into our, our classroom and making an inclusive experience is, is just good teaching. It's what we've already been doing. Is there a difference between what we would say, like it's, it's just good to just good practice to build relationships um, or is it sure. something, something different to add, you know, culture and, and, and background and those considerations into it? Well, to your point, I would say um, 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 good practice for who, you know, good practice and, and good teaching abilities for what sort of student? Does this mean all students or are we talking about a particular group? That would be the question that I would be, then be asking if, that, if we're saying that we're already doing this great work. Okay. And again, who is it great for? What does that mean? And can we find areas where maybe that's not so much the case, you know, and again, have we had conversations with our students to see how well we're doing in, that, in those capacities? I bet if we asked our students, and again, we have the relationships where they trusted us, they would certainly tell us ways that we could make the, the, the um, curriculum or the classroom experience more meaningful for them. And, and I think, you know, one thing that's crossed my mind since kind of encountering that uh, conception too was that we, if this is what we've always been doing, that's good. Uh, but at the same time, some of the disparities have persisted. So there, right. that, can, that can't be the only piece of the yeah. equation because it, it hasn't really right. gotten us where we want to be. <laughs> right. We, we go back to that systemic, the, the systemic inequities argument again too, again, right? Because we're doing that again, we're, we're talking about a system and then again, who is the system set up for? Who is, who is thriving in the system and who's struggling in the system? And then why? And can we unpack those why? And if there's anything related to our system that, that creates the spaces where there's barriers and creates the spaces where students don't feel safe, we've got to address those immediately and call them out. Mm -hmm. And so as we, we talk about the, the classroom, uh, I want to expand that a little bit. Um, and, and first of all, I know uh, a teacher listening may think, well, if it's part of the, the system, you know, I'm, I'm only one person. Is mm -hmm. there anything that I can really do you know, beyond the, the reach of the, you know, the students that I'm really working hard with that would, would have any impact on the system, any, any long-term you know, positive ramifications? Sure, I think that's great. I think uh, co-conspirators in this work is, or allies <laughs> in this work are incredibly important. And so as a, as a classroom teacher, there is a locus of control that you have, which is your classroom, okay? But at the same time, you can also, um, you have influence over your colleagues. You have input into curriculum development. You have opportunities to speak up at department meetings, at staff meetings. And so if there's something that you're seeing that, 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 that is, uh, um, is a barrier, if there is something that you're seeing that is a challenge to equitable outcomes for your students, then let's let's talk about those and let's find some co-conspirators that would be with me and willing to address these at a higher level. And again, if I'm a teacher, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have those conversations with my division head or my department head first, and then with my department as, as a team. And then once we go there, we can then expand that to be, become more systemic as we look at the issues. Mm. I'm curious too about inclusivity. I know um, you kind of addressed it within the classroom. Um, and I wonder about that student who might in, in my classroom feel 
that he is recognized and included. Um, but then he may go to uh, you know, another another period or few periods or just within the, the school at large and not feel the same way. Is there, uh, now how, how do we create that space where the, you know, as much of the school experience as possible, you know, every student feels included? Right. Well, and, and that's where we, we go back to that comment about locus of control in classrooms versus versus buildings versus school districts and systems. And I think a, a systemic equity transformation model speaks to the entire system challenging itself to do exactly what we're talking about. And so um, in order for this to be something that is is that has longevity, in order for this to be something that is incredibly systemic, it has to start at the top. You know, so the question that I would ask is, okay, so what what sort of professional development is your superintendent, your district leaders, are your board of education members embarking upon to understand the why behind the need to do this racial equity work, even in spaces where race may not exist or where people may, may not see black and brown students. Those spaces are the spaces that it's far, that's most critical in my mind to have these conversations and to do this equity work is because when those students leave that bubble of where we are, we want them to be whole. We want them to understand and have empathy and be prepared to deal with uh, people in the world that don't look like them, that don't have the backgrounds that they have, that don't have the social economic advantages or disadvantages that they have, so that they're better prepared to, uh, to you know, to flourish in those environments, not struggle. So, um, you know, systemically, I would I would argue that in order for this these efforts to work uh, um, and be sustained in the classroom, there has to be a s systemic way in looking at that, and that starts with our superintendent, our board of education, our district leaders, and allow that to trickle on down into our classroom and the everyday experiences that happen. Mm -hmm. So it seems like there's kind of both components are important. Obviously the, like as you're saying, kind of from, from the top, the, those uh, system-wide influences, um, but then also more, we'll call it more grassroots too, you know, at the bottom, at the ground level with uh, the teachers yeah. in the classrooms. If, if we all, you know, buy in and are working towards this, then, you know what, how, how can we not help but have momentum in the right Absolutely. direction? Absolutely, and yet if your district leaders aren't part of, a, part of that ground, uh, groundswell of support or grassroots campaign, it's not gonna go very far. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's an interesting consideration too. Um, and I've been uh, you know, proud to work with my colleagues and um, have some, some leaders who have really helped me um, you know, over the last few years and have come to, I think, greater understandings and um, kind of put some, put some legs underneath the, the vision that we have. Um, I, I, I'm curious about a couple of things though, and I want your take on it. Uh, in terms of inclusivity, um, I've heard a couple of different ideas and they they may or may not con contrast with one another. Um, but I'll let you kind of correct uh, my uh, explanation if need be. But uh, on the one hand, we have some, uh, I would say uh, some um, like culturally like specific uh, clubs. Um, for example, uh, just recently we have uh, Black Leader Achievers uh, Club um, that is our first Afrocentric uh, you know, student um, uh, club that we've hosted here at Conant, um, and we've also had Latinos Unidos, and you know it's a, a, a space where you know students really they're open to all students, and many students do participate in those, um, but they're kind of set up as a space for you know the students specific to that uh, culture, that ethnicity, um, maybe more inclined to join. Um, so we have that is setting up uh, like clubs or you know spaces uh, like those. Um, what we're getting after with inclusivity or 
is that giving them a space, but kind of you know segmenting us into you know these these different populations right. that aren't interacting. Sure. What what approach is, is recommended there? Um, that's a great question. My comment will be will will will, will be a both hands. Um, extracurricular spaces and activities for students that are um, um, kind of um, interest driven are incredibly important and part of the learning experience. Yet I will comfortably say that that can't be the only time where students are able to get together and express themselves um, relative to the, the, the lived experiences of being students. And so I'll go back and say that um, I firmly believe that classrooms should be the hallmark for those safe spaces, okay? That's where it starts. You know, the, the classroom should be a microcosm of the overall school community. Right. And so when it starts there, because that's where our students spend the most time, you know, it's easier then to have the other extracurricular or excuse me, co-curricular activities, if you will, kind of align with what's currently happening in the classroom. That way your clubs and activities are extensions of your classroom, not just separate. You know, one of the things that I talk to people about all the time is, you know, now that we have this inaugural position of a um, you know, uh, um, and uh, um, equity, race, and diversity uh, um, specialists, if you will, um, I can't be the only specialist, right? It, it just can't <laughs> all fall on me. You know, people have to understand that this work has to spread throughout um, our, our, our actual system to make it more systemic. You know, so the pockets of equity are great, but we, we've got to sustain the work. And in order to sustain it, it has to be more systemic. So I would encourage the classrooms to be the hallmark spaces, and then those co-curriculars to be extensions. And then that way, things that happen in the classroom can extend themselves into the co-curriculars and vice versa. That way, we're, we're, we're all in alignment and we're all moving towards the same targeting goal. Mm. And I think that's interesting because we're looking at, you know, not just these, these uh, co-curriculars as these you segmented space, but co-curriculars themselves are kind of interwoven with uh, the rest of the, the fabric that makes the, the school function um, right. along with and the I, classrooms. I, I love the term co-curricular for that very reason. It becomes a part of the educational experience. It's not extra, you know. Uh, or, I, I noticed that. Added, I like that. Yeah. Right? So, so it's important. Words matter, right? So it's important to think about it that way. And so co-curricular activities, again, just, just, just align themselves with the regular educational experience and are part of the educational experience. All right. So... How do we how do we know if if what we're doing is working? Um, I mean, if if our if our goal is to you know, bridge some of these disparities, help every student you know realize as many opportunities as are out there. Are, are there any like short term or long term hallmarks that say like okay, these these things that we've put into place are are actually moving us into the right direction? Well, the reality right now is um, how you know that you're uh, going down the right path is going to be the pushback that you receive, the challenges that you receive. <laughs> um, you'll know you're heading down the right path when people begin to question the rationale behind decisions being made, and you'll be accused of being divisive and a troublemaker. Um, but to me, I always remember Congressman John Lewis's charge to continue to find yourself some what we call good trouble. And I believe that this work is good trouble to get into. Short-term outcomes can simply be providing admin and teachers professional development on the why, you know, why this work is important, the data that speaks to us having, you know, having a need that has to be addressed and met. Um, why are we doing the work, you know, and now I have my own why for that, Jordan, but other people need to develop and you, you need to have your own why. And once I think a school system can develop their why, we can then commit to doing the individual 
and collective work needing needed to be become what I call culturally proficient, right? Once we become culturally proficient in our classrooms and within our leadership structures, we'll then be able to see our inequities differently because we'll have a critical lens that we're looking through that's different, right? We'll have that equity lens that, that we're, we're putting everything through. We're putting race on the table and everything we do. We're thinking about equity with every decision that we make, right? And uh, how do we sustain this long-term? Well, it's just like how we, you know, folks who exercise maintain their body. The muscle memory is important, right? So you got to work at it. So you got to work out. You, you, you can't do one workout and be, be fit for the rest no, of your life? Yeah. No, 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 not this way. This is a lifelong journey. You know, this is lifelong. And, and, and again, no one is omniscient in this work. I have experiences and lived experiences, but I learn every day. And um, I would also think when I think about racial equity and the systemic transformation, that again, it is a lifelong journey, individually and collectively. Yeah, I, I really like that comparison to working out or I'll throw like the other um, cliche, like the, the diet as well. Like I can't mm -hmm. eat one yeah. salad and and be healthy. Um, I'm cured. Yeah, mm -hmm. right. <laughs> Doesn't work that way. Um, you, you mentioned you have a, a why. And I, I think that is really important as we get down to like the, the root of our, our motivation. Do you, do you mind sharing your sure. why or how, how, how you would articulate sure. it? Um, my why is because um, I have been blessed and fortunate um, to navigate through educational systems, um, to, to get to the point of having two masters and almost a doctorate in systems that weren't made for me. I was given and I was told many of times that I wouldn't be successful and that I should, I should do something else, right? So I see myself in a lot of the students and I see that despair. And um, my why speaks to challenging that notion and making school systems um, equitable for all. But to do that, we have to name the reality that it's not right, not right now working for everybody. Okay, and asking the hard question about why that is, even in spaces where race and uh, social economic issues may not exist. Privilege will still exist. And I can guarantee you priv privilege thrives in spaces that are, are predominantly homogeneous and, and socially, social economically advantaged. They thrive there. And so there also means because they're thriving there, the teachers and the staff and admin and the folks may not have a perspective on why some things need to change, may not understand why some policies and procedures are barriers for access. You know, I think about tracking systems. I think about the advanced placement classes. And, and you know, one of the things for me was as a principal, people said, well, we'll make, you know, how will you know, you know, when this equity work is working? And I said, well, this is great for me. At a one million square foot campus, and I could say, when I walk in the classroom, I want to be able to look in that classroom and not know the level of the class based upon either the color of the skin of the, of the students or the gender of the students. That's how I'll know. And so people are like, well, man, we got a long way to go. Uh-huh. Yeah, we do. And so those are things that I think about as relates to my why. Nice, wow. I, I think that is um, maybe an important, but uh, you know, at, at times like overlooked exercise for ourselves to say like, well, all right, we're, we're, we're in this work, we're behind this work, but why can we articulate, you know, why we're going to continue down this, this road? Um, so right. that's, I, I mean, I, I feel personally challenged right now to be able to articulate that to, to myself or to anyone that, that may ask. Um, so I think it's very thoughtful. 
do you have uh, any any examples from either your own experience or just other schools or districts where there was um, something particularly uh, creative or, or effective that they uh, had put into into place or adopted that um, really seemed to to address what they were going for? Um, uh, in my prior district, um, I was able to work with a, a great team to create um, the district's first ever racial equity policy. People freaked out and said, well, well why, why, why do we need a racial equity policy? We have, you know, Title IX here. We have all of these, these particular policies that govern um, how we are supposed to act and treat students. And I said, well, okay, let's look at our data. Let's, 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 here are our practices and procedures, and here are the disparities in discipline. Here are the disparities in our number of, of African-American and Latino students that are not in our advanced placement classes. Here are the number of students that are based upon our graduation rate and da-da-da-da-da. So, you know, I, I said that to say, um, if we're going to be about, you know, claiming that we're going to be a school or a district that thrives and, and is committed to racial equity, then name it. Name it so everybody knows when they come to this organization, this is what's expected. And so what was, what was cool is we did that and we named that. And so the expectation, when you have that commitment, look, if you press send on your application, well, then you should expect them to be asked about how you're going to infuse culturally relevant pedagogy into your practice. Well, fortunately now, you know, our state superintendent has already, you know, we've created the culturally rele relevant uh, pedagogy and, and, and um, expectations that are, are to take place, which are also in alignment with the executive order that was signed uh, January 20th by our, 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 our new president. And so, look, the, the groundwork is, is now laid out in a different way for us where it's there. And so it's an expectation. So we don't even have to talk about necessarily, well, you should talk about the why, but if you want to, if you're a rule follower, the why is because there's rules now that govern it. Okay. And so in my time, we didn't have those rules, but we, we, we wanted to make those rules. And so we were courageous enough to start getting out there and making decisions and challenging ourselves to, to do things differently. And so that's how we began. Um, so I also can talk about, again, I spoke earlier about the importance of systemic equity, right? And so um, I had a district that partnered with a, a professional development group called Courageous Convers uh, excuse me, Pacific Educational Group out of San Francisco. Um, the, the CEO uh, is Glenn Singleton. He's written two books. One was called Courageous Conversations About Race. And the other one was more Courageous Conversations About Race. And it really was about a, a, a tool to develop ways to, to hold courageous conversations about race. And through the experience of professional development for the district staff, that meant the superintendent, the assistant superintendent, the, the, you know, the chief financial officer, our chief technology officer, down to members of our custodial staff, members of our support staff, we began to embark on this professional development cycle where people were expected to be part of this professional development. And what then began to happen is that we began to see a culture shift. We began to use words such as white privilege and people didn't freak out and think that we were all racist. We began to talk about rules and expectations that we felt were not in alignment with our commitment to racial equity and then the reasons why we needed to look at and challenge those. 
we began to look at our advanced placement numbers and then say, okay, this year as a goal, we want to add 10 to 15% of our black and brown students into these, into these populations and by and large, make sure that we do the work to make sure that they are successful and can sustain uh, being in those classes. So don't just, just put them in there because of what they look like, but let's, let's build a bridge, you know? And so those are some of the things that happened that were phenomenal that I felt were opportunities systemically to challenge ourselves to become more equitable. And those are some of the things that I would like to replicate um, here in Barrington uh, uh, District 220. Nice. I, I feel like I could, um, you know, just continue to to pick your brain. Uh, there's a lot of um, a lot of a lot of material that we've laid out over the course of our conversation. Um, but you know, just we've covered a, a lot of ground in a short time, and I know you've referenced a few resources. Are there, if someone were listening and interested in learning a little bit more about anything that you've brought up, do you have any ideas or recommendations for uh, either something to read or something to kind of tap into? Sure. Um, so this is a true story, and, 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 and it's funny, but not so much, but I mean, this is just for the audience. And I can remember when, um, you know, the situation, the civil unrest happened this summer, and um, George Floyd was murdered, and people just didn't know what to do. And, you know, again, I'm, yeah, I've been an administrator, you know, I've, I've been, you know, a professional for 25 years now, so I had people reaching out, just wanted to reach out because they knew I was black, but then wanted to reach out and were like, well, you know, what can I do? You know, what can I do? And one thing I can say is that, well, you know, if I wanted to learn math, I would probably grab a math book and start learning math. You know, if I wanted to become a better, you know, speaker, I would do the work to uh, find uh, opportunities out there that would help enhance my speaking ability. If you want to be anti-racist, do the research, Google it, get out and look. There's plenty of information out there that speaks to what you can do to be an anti-racist besides call a person of color and say, what can I do? My friends never called me when they needed mortgage advice. They never called me when they needed information on which jobs to pick. They never called me when, when they needed information on, you know, which mate to choose. So when it comes to this work here, you know, I, I think people, people are pretty resourceful when we want to be. Mm -hmm. So let's encourage and let's, let's challenge ourselves to be anti-racist in that way. So, you know, besides Googling, um, you know, I, I think I spoke a little bit about a framework for me, for me personally. Um, the bedrock of my training and the bedrock of my um, understandings of race and how it has impacted my life. Um, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk again about a specific educational group, Courageous Conversations about Race and Glenn Singleton. Um, that work was amazing. Um, the, the professor development uh, that I received helped me understand how race has impacted me as a black man and how oppression has impacted me and how whiteness has impacted me and how I showed up every day as a black principal and, it, it, you know, steeped in whiteness and what I needed to do to work through that. And so those are some opportunities. Um, here's a book, I know they can't see it, but this is just on my table. Uh, Ibram Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist. I mean, this is, this is huge. Um, That's good, my wife and I actually uh, just read that a uh, couple months ago together. Yeah, yeah, so, um, and again, um, Robin D'Angelo's work on uh, white fragility and what, what does it mean to be white? Those are wonderful resources, uh, scholarly resources, if you will, if you want to read. Uh, but I, actually the lived experiences and having the conversations and finding ways to challenge yourself to uh, to think differently as it, when it comes to race, that's where it starts. Excellent. And uh, if anyone were just interested in uh, getting in touch with or, or learning more about you and your work, is there a place that they could go? 
Sure. Um, you know, I, I am the director of equity, race, and cultural diversity initiatives in um, consolidated, you know, uh, unified school district 220 in Barrington. So in Rouse at Barrington220.org. Or you can also catch me on Twitter. I have some fun on there. That's a personal account, but I always speak about equity and, you know, you know, and, and, and things of that nature. And that's um, at Educatum1906. Excellent. Well, we'll look forward to being in touch and hopefully having a few excuses down the road to learn a little bit more from you as well. Thanks for joining us today on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I just met you and this is crazy, but here's my Okay. We learned a lot in this energetic conversation and I hope you're feeling as inspired as I am to continue the equity work we're engaged in. Mr. Rouse speaks to the importance of persistence and continuity with the process. And I think as you heard me say in the conversation, uh, I recognize that it's important for all of us to be able to speak to our why. Why do we desire equity for our students? Why is it important for us to recognize the role that we play? Why does what we do truly matter in the lives of our students? Being able to answer this helps us continue to drive forward. More specifically, Mr. Rouse spoke to the centrality of the classroom to each student's experience. And I think sometimes we do look at how, when we're addressing a system, uh, we look at how individuals at the top of the hierarchy are engaging. And, and Mr. Rouse even agrees, this is critical, but realistically speaking, students are going to spend the bulk of their time in high school in a classroom. So we have to recognize the essential role we all play at the ground level for effectuating change. If you're like me, you might be inclined to listen to this conversation a few times. I encourage you to do so. I certainly will be, and our hope is that we'll have some excuse in the not too distant future to reconnect and continue to learn alongside Mr. Rouse. Thank you for joining us on the Teaching and Learning Podcast. And until next time, I'm Jordan Catapano, reminding you to stay curious. I trade my soul for a wish, pennies and dimes for a kiss. I wasn't looking for this, but now you're in my way.